most places you, you, you can probably safely in a sense that you'll walk away from the airplane landed on tires, but you might not get to reuse the airplane again. Um, floats, Alaska is so boggy and even the dry land is marshy and soft. Um, it's tons of swamp. And so the opportunities are endless on floats to um, land places planned and unplanned. Um, when you cross bodies of water on tires, oftentimes you want thousands of feet to give yourself glide distance to maybe to some dry land. Um, on floats, while it might not be desirable to land, say, in um, a choppy saltwater scenario, it would be um, doable. You would, it would probably be okay if you had to land. So you have a lot more options with ceilings and visibility. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. Okay, so you're flying along, you look out to the side of the airplane, and you notice that there's no longer a wingtip on the airplane. Yes. Is that like a hypothetical scenario? Not for me. It's not. No. <laughs> <clears throat> That's a good story. Um, yeah, that was a uh, really my flight training before I had my license. I was flying with a flight instructor that was um, a character. He loved, loved, loved to talk. He was probably 80 years old five years ago. So he was um, a seasoned pilot anyhow. And he was known for doing lots of super aggressive maneuvers in the air and things. And we were doing aggressive maneuvers in a little airplane that wasn't made for that. What was the airplane? It was a Cessna 150. It was a 150 horse Cessna 150. So a good plane to learn in, really easy to fly, similar to driving a car, really. You can you can make a lot of errors and get away with them. So it's a um, super forgiving little airplane. But it had big droopy wingtips on, which um, I always joked that they... They, all they really did for me is make it hard to see out of the airplane. I, don't, I can't imagine. I don't think they actually did anything for the airplane, but blocked my vision. So it was really obvious after these uh, aggressive maneuvers that were making me sick to my stomach. I looked out and I'm missing a wingtip out of the airplane. And it's a big chunk. It's deceiving how big airplane parts are on a small airplane. When you get up and close in person, um, a wingtip that maybe the cord is 48 inches and the wingtip might be three feet wide. So it's a big chunk of the airplane missing. Anyhow, it was scared me quite a bit. I think I'd only had maybe 10 hours of, of flying. And so, so like a, a picnic table size exactly, piece of airplane yeah. is no longer attached. And there's so wires see, hanging out. Right. So you see that missing. Yeah. And so there's lights and electronics that go out to a wingtip. So like you said, there's wires flying behind, flapping in the wind. And I told my flight instructor, I said, 
I think we're missing a wingtip. Because what else do you say, even though it's obvious, right? And he looks at me and he says, I'll be damned we are. And it's like, well, (laughs) what are we going to (laughs) do? I mean, there's got to be some kind of response for this. I've been flying for 10 hours, but surely there's a missing a wingtip procedure we're going to get out. And he says, well, we're flying, aren't we? And I said, well, I I guess. And so we went out and we did like another 20 minutes of steep turns and stalls and things that I I was so, I thought the plane was going to fall out of the sky. But um, anyhow, ended up going back to the airport that way. Looked for the wingtip, flying around, of course, never uh, found it that day. Um, Roundabout way, even more oddball to the story, is that a a moose hunter years later um, found that wingtip. He actually posted it to Facebook. It wasn't anybody I knew, but um, I had friends tagging me. Dustin, Dustin, Dustin. I thought someone was playing a joke on me because at the time that was a fun story. I loved to tell my friends. I lost a wingtip flying, so they all like to poke fun about it. Anyhow, the Facebook post is, hey, anybody missing um, a wingtip to their airplane? And sure enough, it's my wingtip and it's a picture of it and out in the tundra somewhere. And so through the grapevine, I got a hold of the guy and sure enough, he's like, yeah, I found a wingtip. I looked for the rest of the airplane, didn't find it. And so went about my way. Anyhow, I, I was like, oh my gosh, I would, I would kill for you to lead me back to that. So, um, we made a trip out of it, got both of our dogs, went on a hike and, um, ended up finding my wingtips. So and I have both. I have in my shed, <laughs> I actually took the other one off as a keepsake. So forever, um, my wife loves it cause I store junk, but I've got these two wingtips in my shed, one of which fell out of the plane at, or fell off the plane at probably three or 4,000 feet in the air. So. And that's like a, in, in some ways, this is a standard thing that, Every pilot I know who owns airplanes also owns airplane parts. Right. Like that's just part of their life. Sure. And uh, you don't even own that airplane anymore. No, and I've got pieces to it. I, it was to the point I've moved them enough. I want to find the person that does own that airplane now and say, hey, man, if you want some wingtips to that airplane, uh, behind you in this room are aircraft propellers that also go to that airplane that my wife, I I've, I've turned that. them into decorative pieces because <laughs> I don't have anything else to do with them. But uh, yeah, so you, you do end up moving parts just like um i'm sure boat people probably have boat parts and airplane people keep airplane parts so i was hunting in nebraska last fall with jordan bud and her dad is a um is a pilot and he does a bunch of helicopter gunning for coyotes and inside the the bunkhouse that we're staying in there's a prop up behind the fireplace and part of it was bent and i said well what happened there and he he goes, oh, I got a little close to the ground. And he was actually flying a Super Cub and shooting the coyotes himself, um, you know, without a gunner in the an back. impressive skill. Yeah. Very impressive skill. Because flying usually takes all of your facilities right. at once. And in this case, he probably could have spent a little bit more time flying and a little bit less <laughs> right. time shooting a coyote. But he just said, yeah, you know, it shook like a wet dog all the way back to the airport. That's but great. <laughs> it kept flying. Yeah, I had another instance. Um with uh so i'm on skis so i had an airplane on straight skis so there's no wheels it's just nothing but skis so with that you don't have brakes it's really difficult to turn um but they're light and they have a big footprint which is the nice thing about straight skis on an airplane anyhow i landed with some friends across the inlet we were hauling in a log splitter actually we're gonna split some wood at a friend's cabin and landed in really deep snow way too deep snow and ended up tearing my tail ski off um, hit something underneath the snow that ripped it off and I knew right away because, again, no, when you're on straight skis, there's no brakes. And I landed and my plane stopped really quickly, like mm. um, hit the brakes. And so what it was was the anchor of a tail on the snow missing a ski. And so we were in the middle of the runway. Um, 
with my plane pretty much anchored in, in feet of snow, lots of snow. And, um, I couldn't take off straight, even if I had a ski with the, as much room as I had, cause I'm right in the middle of the runway. So really the mission turned into one, finding that ski, um, getting my plane to the point where we could duct tape said ski back onto the, the tail skid of the airplanes, which we did. So we got snowshoes out, packed out a big path with my friend and, and myself and, uh, got the airplane up in the air, which was heavy cause it's you're awkward standing in snow. You don't have good footing. So it's, everything's heavier when you're, you know, of course, standing in snow. Uh, but we duck, literally duct taped and wired this ski back on, um, turned it around, pointed the right direction, uh, which was a huge effort having to stomp down snow to the point where we could get room to turn it around and, um, ended up taking off like that again. Anyways, along with my broken airplane parts, I also have that broken ski in my shed. <laughs> so that's, it that falls right in line with me, uh, hoarding all my, my junk, but it all has good stories with it. So I can't get rid of it. But how was your landing after you'd taken off and come back to wherever you're from? Um, if you know it, the tails or the tail skis missing, very ginger. So you put all the, all the pressure on the front two skis and keep that tail off as long as you can. And until you really need to set it down. And hmm. if you know you're doing that, you can manage it pretty well if you have all the room, but, um, yeah, it's just a add to the experience bucket and pull out of the luck bucket. And a lot of times they say, and when you run out of the luck bucket, hopefully you quit flying and your experience bullet buckets full. So, yeah, well, we're up here, um, at your home right now outside Soldotna, Alaska. And a few days ago you took us for a flight and, uh, you know, we saw black bears and we saw moose and, uh, we saw a brown bear and went and flew up this glacier. Absolutely incredible. Like I can tell everybody knows that like being a bush pilot is a common enough thing in Alaska, right? And this place is so big that flight is not only a a convenient, but oftentimes necessary way just to get around. But it's also spectacular to be in the air in this place. Now, a lot of people in the States, you know, they fly in places that have good weather and it's flat everywhere and, it's kind of no big deal. And if something goes wrong, they can land just about anywhere. But that's uh, that's not the case here. However, there is a huge amount of water here. And your plane right now, which is a Cessna 185, has really beautiful floats on it. So now that you've had tires and skis and floats, like, kind of give me the pros and cons of each of those. For, yeah. f- for flying up here. Sure. So um, it's it's easy to learn and get your license on tires. So typically, there's this rare occasions where people learn on floats. So most people learn on tires. Um, it's really available, or it's a lot of airports available to learn to, to meet people to fly on tires. Um, typically, lakes or private property. So if you have to have a place to keep a float plane. But so learning on tires, um, the biggest thing is the ground handling. So it kind of gets back to the brakes, the, the steering. Um, when you're on the ground, you can pretty much say game over whenever you want. Uh, when you're on floats, it's, it's, you're really always, um, the music really starts once you land and you're moving and you have no brakes. And, um, it's very similar to trying to dock a boat and things like that. So that was probably the, one of the biggest learning curves I didn't realize, um, was just the simple things. It's not, not necessarily flying the airplane in the air, but what to do after you land. Um, if there's a, a rock in the water, a log, maybe someone else in a boat, um, they need to realize you have a propeller spinning in front of you and you have no brakes and, uh, and you don't have don't neutral that up, right? There's no neutral. It's all go. <laughs> so it's always going forward from the second you start the airplane. Um, it's go time. You got to start flying. So, um, even if you're only putting along in the water, 
So that's kind of a, a drawback that um, was a challenge. But as far as the pros, Alaska is full of water, especially the Kenai Peninsula um, where I live. And so always flying on tires, there's always a margin of safety you want to give yourself flying over water with your altitude and things that you want to consider. If I ever had to land the airplane right now, where am I going to land it? Um, most places you, you, you can probably safely, in a sense that you'll walk away from the airplane, land it on tires, but you might not get to reuse the airplane again. Um, floats, Alaska is so boggy and even the dry land is marshy and soft. Um, it's tons of swamp. And so the opportunities are endless on floats to um, land places planned and unplanned. Um, when you cross bodies of water on tires, oftentimes you want thousands of feet to give yourself glide distance to maybe to some dry land. Um, on floats, while it might not be desirable to land, say, in um, a choppy saltwater scenario, it would be um, doable. You would, it would probably be okay if you had to land. So you have a lot more options with ceilings and visibility. Um, as far as hunting and fishing, it's kind of turned me into an old man because on a big lake, you can always land with a headwind and always take off with a, a headwind unless it's something super narrow. Whereas an airstrip, you're just going to have to deal with whatever direction the airstrip is pointed. But on a lake, you can kind of look at it. If it's big enough, you make the judgment call to always point your airplane right into the um, nose into the wind. So I always joke with my wife that the float plane flying has kind of made me old man flying, but um, I'll take it. It's a, it's an extra safety margin and it's, it's a heck of a lot more fun um, when you get easy landings and easy takeoffs. So, and there's a lot of storage in the floats. I don't think people realize that you can put yeah. stuff in there and they're not all that way. Um, old school pilots had to, um, had floats without storage lockers in them, um, you know, back really in the, the fifties, sixties, but um, as People have been flying, and as they've been making newer floats, they've included big, huge storage lockers, like you said. So um, the aircraft I have are on Aeroset 3500s. Uh, the number typically is designating like the pounds of displacement that float has. Um, so theoretically, one of those floats could support 3,500 pounds. But in there is a huge storage hatch, um, which lets you put... Um, store things, right? It's at the perfect location as far as your center of gravity in an airplane. That's a big, important thing. Um, airplanes have lots of room in them, but you don't always want to store something super heavy, say, in the back of the airplane that's going to make it difficult to fly. So with these floats, they put the storage lockers right in that sweet spot. And then the ones that I have, um, they're huge. So I think in one float, I figured out I can put eight five-gallon gas cans, which is a ton of stuff. Um, so stinky things, if you have fish, uh, moose, something you don't want, bleeding or dripping all over your airplane, you can put them down on the floats and um, you're flying home um, comfortably. So um, it's easy to get stuff in and out of the floats. It's kind of chest height rather than crawling in the back of your airplane to dig stuff out of the tail. So um, that's a huge bonus of having those floats. It's basically like having two pretty big kayaks it for is. your yep. airplane to sit on and it's fly It's deceiving in. how big they are. And when we're talking about displacement, it's, it's one of these really fascinating things that people learned about in like seventh grade and then forgot. But the, the reason we talk about displacement is because the law of buoyancy is that an object in water has an upward force on it that is equal to the amount of water that it displaces. So 3,500 pounds means that you can displace 
3,500 pounds worth of water, and that's the upward force sure. that's acting against gravity. So that's how float, floating things work. It's kind of the odd uh, when you see a, a water bridge. Maybe if you see like down in, in Europe and things, they have bridges that are full of water and boats in them. And, and maybe there's a million boats in there, but people don't realize they could put as many boats in there as they want. It's displacing that same amount of water. So that mm-hmm. bridge isn't having to support. It's kind of an odd physics problem, but it's pretty cool. Yeah, so. it is cool. If somebody wanted to to move to Alaska and become an Alaskan bush pilot, how do they start? Like what's the process to even begin? So I'm a pilot just for fun. So I fly privately, which is about the easiest way to do it. Um, if you want to come up to Alaska and um, if you want to learn to fly up here, or maybe you're already a pilot and you want to come get some Alaskan experience, that's when it's um, very available. There's a number of outfits. The Kenai Peninsula is, um, pretty rich with them, but places like Anchorage are very rich with flight schools, flight seeing, um, outfits that have the ability to take you and let you get some hours. So, um, if you're willing to just fly up here and you have a weekend and you want to go do some glacier flying, if you want to land on skis, if you want to land on floats, there's actually quite a bit of flight schools that can just, um, do just that for you. You could call them and say, I want to land an airplane on skis on a glacier. And they would do that for you. I'm a pilot right now, or maybe I'm a student pilot. Um, that's very easy to do. If you want to learn, if you have no hours and it's just something that maybe is a dream of yours, I want to learn to fly an airplane and I want to do it in Alaska. That's also available. It'll be a little more mild airport to airport type, um, learning for you. And and it won't be a lot of the crazy water and snow stuff right away. It could be pretty quick, but, um, but that's all available too. If you want to come up here and work as a pilot, um, that is also very doable, probably more so than anywhere. There's, um, lots of pilot job opportunities in Alaska for people that want to fly freight or fly hunters. Um, maybe they want to, um, do kind of the milk runs. They say fly supplies into the villages. Um, that's available too. I know typically for insurance companies, they, for part 135, um, so like a commercial pilot operation, they do require Alaskan hours before they're allowed to put you on kind of the payroll. So before you were able to do that, you would want to say, oh, I've got X amount of Alaska hours. So that's kind of where even if you're already a commercial pilot, you would want to come and fly on your own or fly with a flight school so that you had some Alaska experience. Um, and really the big difference there that they worry about um, is not necessarily the skill of you as a pilot, but um, the skill to make kind of judgment calls with Alaska. You mentioned earlier how the availability of support facilities and fuel and how the weather changes here. And you might be a long ways from anybody that can help you make that decision. Um, sometimes even your radio, um, there's no one else to talk to. You can't call an airport or call another pilot. Um, it's really all on you making those decisions. So I think that's really what they focus on and why they really emphasize on people having Alaskan hours. So they know how to make those judgment calls on their own. Interesting. What, uh, what are some weather conditions that, that you look at that are your go, no go criteria? Really? So if I have to fly through a mountain pass, um, that changes things. If I have to fly over water, it changes things. But there are, um, a lot of people joke there's VFR visual flight rules that makes it legal for the everyday pilot to fly. And then a lot of people joke, well, then there's Alaskan VFR, um, which they're insinuating that they're, um, kind of margin of safety is a little bit different because of how much weather changes here. So really, um, a rule of thumb that if I have to cross water on tires, so this is if I've, um, again, I'm not on floats, but, um, a lot of people say a thousand feet, it kind of, it totally depends on the airplane, but a rule of thumb, a thousand feet can, and under the right conditions, get you about a mile of, um, gliding. So if you 
were a thousand feet up in the air and your engine shut down, you could under the right conditions have about a mile one way or the other to glide. So if I was making a water crossing that was 10 miles long and I'm smack dab in the middle of that, I need about five miles of glide distance to get to either side. I better be at least, you know, 5,000 feet in the air. Um, it's kind of how I used to judge that on tires on floats. Again, I've got a little better margin for safety um, because I might not want to land in the salt water or rough seas, but um, it would be doable. So that's something you consider when crossing water. As far as the mountain passes, um, people hit mountains a lot in Alaska. It's funny. Um, no, it's not funny, but it's uh, far too often people either run out of fuel flying in Alaska or they hit mountains um, because of uh, meteorological conditions where they couldn't see them. So really, if uh, if I turn into a mountain pass and I can't see, if I'm on step one and I can't see what step two is, if I'm going to have to keep going a little bit further to see if I can make that turn or not, um, typically the, what you're going to do is turn around. Uh, more experienced pilots that would know mountain passes maybe like the back of their hand uh, would be much more gung-ho than I am about uh, about things like that. But I'm a pretty fair weather pilot, so my go or no-go, uh, my margin is a little, uh, a little bigger. As far as wind, um, you can get really, really windy conditions um, in Alaska, but um, my, I would say wind is usually about the least of my worries. The rule of thumb is typically that your airplane um, can take a lot harder of a beating than you can. So um, right. if, if you're okay and you're flying the plane, the plane's probably okay too. So it's not comfortable. You get bumped around sometimes, but um, for the most part, it's it's about the safest of the uncomfortable situations you can be in. Um, so really ceilings, visibility, and um, just knowing the destination I'm going to, and I'm going to be able to see where I need to land. Um, if you can put those together, um, typically it's a, a pretty safe scenario for you. Running out of fuel seems like a stupid problem, yeah. but most people have done it in a car, which is a stupid problem there as well. Right. So it's just that the consequences are somewhat more severe if you're in right. the so air. The 80-year-old flight instructor I mentioned, of all the crazy things he had me experience, but he also gave me a lot of really good tidbits of flying for the majority of his life in Alaska. He always told me the only time you can have too much fuel is if you're on fire. And so <laughs> everywhere I'm always a sucker for fuel. Even when we went flying, um, you and I, the other day, we might've only flown for maybe an hour and a half, but I think I had five hours of fuel on board. We could have gone to Fairbanks if we needed to, to, right. to hang out somewhere else. So, um, yeah, I'll take all, I'd rather be overweight, over gross, but have too much fuel rather than curious if I have enough fuel to get where I'm going to. So, yeah. And I've, I've been flying even back home in, e in Eastern Oregon where you go out and fly around for a little bit, do whatever you have to do, see what you needed to see and turn around to head back and you can't, can't see on the way back. Right. So now you're potentially going to have to go fly to Idaho or, you know, fly maybe an hour or two hours in another direction when you thought you're going to make it back in half an hour, but this cloud rolled in and now it's foggy or it's icy and you can't do it better to have the fuel. Yeah. I think legally they say, um, and I'm going to screw this up, but I'm pretty sure it's, um, legally you want to have your destination plus 30 minutes of fuel in daytime. And I think you want your destination plus 45 minutes of fuel at nighttime. Um, but where we were flying, I wasn't, I wasn't, if I were on tires, we weren't 30 minutes away from anywhere to land. So you always want to take more than that. Right. But yeah. What's it like hunting out of an airplane? It is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty cool. It's, uh, yeah, I was, um, 
my airplane. And, and we're talking about doing this legally, just so everybody knows. There, right. I mean, it, it almost feels like it's not legal, but um, there, and there definitely are, there are rules. Um, depending where you're at, for the most part in Alaska, um, depending what species you are, what uh, management unit you're in, for the most part, though, you cannot fly and hunt the same day. There are places where that's different, but um, it would be very easy, um, especially if you had something like a super cub that can land on a postage stamp. Um, there are moose everywhere. So if you're moose hunting from an airplane um, and you go flying during moose season, you are going to find moose. You're going to find bulls. Um, if you can land next to them and shoot them, it would be extremely easy. Um, there's It's just too, uh, airplanes are too capable and there are too many moose. But even having to spend the night, wake up, shoot them the next calendar day, um, it's it's pretty flipping awesome being able to spot an animal, see where, what direction it's going. We might not even be hunting for three days and you and I could find a moose and it's, see what direction it's walking. Okay. We need to be 10 miles that way and we're going to land there and we're just going to let it do its thing and keep walking toward us. So things like that make surveying, uh, animals awesome. It also makes the terrain. Um, if you can find a route, how you're going to access something, if you know about where you want to shoot something and figure out, um, how you're going to walk out, um, the having, being able to get 500 feet, a thousand feet in the air, um, is just absolutely priceless. I mean, you can imagine, um, some places you hunt and you spend how long just trying to find an animal, but with an airplane, you can find that animal in five minutes maybe. So, and on that same token, it's not a given, like a moose can walk a heck of a long ways. So absolutely. Just because you saw him, you're like, Oh, got a moose in the bag. Let's yep. uh, no, sleep I... in tomorrow and go find him. Like he might be, you know, 30 miles away in another direction. You bet. And there, and don't get me wrong. There are places airplanes cannot land. There's nasty bogs and swamps that, um, and this is very common that you'll see the biggest moose you've ever seen in your entire life. And it's not coming anywhere where you can land an airplane to, and you might be able to shoot it, but you'd never get it out of there. There's nowhere you can haul that thousand, 1500 pound animal to, to get to an airplane. So, um, yeah, it comes with its own challenges as uh, for sure, but there's, there's a reason it's an extremely popular means of transportation for hunting. Um, it's a big state, so it takes things like that to go see um, hunting areas a long ways away. But um, it's flipping awesome. I'm not going to lie. So Yeah. And you and your wife and, and your young son like to go fishing as well. Yep. And so being in the float plane, um, yeah, you can land on lakes um, really anywhere you want to go. We've landed on rivers. Um it's, it's great. You can pick places where you're not going to see another soul and you know, it's packed full of fish. So you could fish off, you can stand on the floats and fish. Um, <laughs> there's a number of public use cabins around Alaska. They actually have a fantastic circuit of, uh, maintained cabins from, um, the state government as well as federal government, um, that you can get online and check out and you can go stay in log cabins that have wood stoves next to lakes full of fish and you can land your plane there and you're the only ones there. Um, that's what, that's one of our favorite things to do actually. Can you rent airplanes here? You can, um, you'd likely, I don't know of any, um, really off airport type airplanes that you would be able to rent. It's very easy to rent a plane. If you want to go airport to airport, you can look at animals, fly over glaciers, do a lot of that stuff. But, um, if you want to go land on beaches and, um, be in the winter landing on skis, that would be more difficult. It might be available, but it's, um, not common at all. Sure. What's your day job? I work in the oil and gas industry. So, um, I work at a, a refinery, they call it downstream. Um, prior to that, I worked what they call upstream up on Alaska's North slope. Um, but, um, yeah, for about, 
about 15 years I've been in the oil and gas industry with about 10 of those being in refining. I feel like oil and gas is another thing that people all experience and all rely on for the most part, but they know very little about how it gets to them. Right. Uh, so tell me about that process since you've, you've been involved in, in basically all ends of it. Yeah. So, um, specific to Alaska, it's going to, it's going to be similar maybe in the Gulf and things like that. But a lot of people say, if you hear a lot of oil patch people throw around upstream, midstream, downstream, but, um, the upstream is typically the exploration, getting oil out of the ground. And so, um, a lot of the oil platforms you see out, um, in the water, as well as the facilities like on Alaska's North slope, um, their primary goal is to get oil out of the ground get the water and gas out of it and put, um, decent oil in a pipeline that's ready to refine, ready to be a, um, have somebody turn it into something. Um, that's a huge industry. There's, you know, billions of barrels of oil, um, like on Alaska's North slope alone. So the, it's pretty daunting how big, um, the equipment is up there in a huge landscape. Um, you see, I mean, trucks and heavy equipment and facilities that are just monumental, um, for what, what it takes to get, um, oil out of so deep in the earth. Um, what they do with it is they put it into the pipeline, um, which is specific to Alaska and down in the Gulf somewhere. It might be a barge. It could be you guys use a lot of trucks and trains down there that we don't, but uh, midstream is getting it really between coming out of the ground and now we got to send it to a refinery. So that's a lot of the pipelines. Um, they have a, Alaska has a Trans Alaska pipeline that goes from the North Slope down to um, ends up being Valdez. But there's a number of facilities in the pipeline that are going to monitor the oil, make sure it stays warm and has to stay at a certain temperature so that it flows correctly. What's um, the viscosity of this oil at this point? It's pretty, it's, it's very, it's oddly light viscosity. Um, I remember when I first went to the North Slope, I pictured crude oil to be this nasty tar bubbling, um, you know, like the Beverly Hillbillies bubbling out of the ground type thing, but it's actually, it's, it's pretty thin. I mean, oil is different in different parts of the world. There's oil that's crude oil that's green. There's crude oil that's um, almost translucent, but most of it looks like um, kind of a black consistency, maybe of pancake syrup, um, maybe even a little lighter than that, but it does change. You know, the goal that really, by the time it gets to the refineries, they don't want any junk in it, water or stuff like that. So um, they try to get as much of that out of it, but yeah, it's a surprisingly thin. Um, so it flows pretty well. You can pump it, you can, um, it cleans up pretty easy. It's not horribly sticky when it's warm. So really out of the pipelines, um, it ends up going to refineries. Refineries essentially heat it up and turn it into a million different things, whatever the market is kind of driving for. If, if the market is um, driven to gasoline to make a lot of gasoline, they can change their process around to do that. If um, jet fuel is very profitable, they might change their process around to make a lot of jet fuel. And they can make a number of different things, but typically they're focused on what, um, they're going to get the bang for their buck on. And, um, really the big ones are going to be your light ends, propane, butane, things that you'd fill your propane take up in your, um, uh, for your barbecue with. And then butane is typically what they blend into gasoline. That's how you get vapor pressure and gasoline. So those are kind of the light ends. The, the middle ones are going to be your jet fuel, your diesel kerosene, um, and then you're going to have heavy stuff, um, gas oil, things that they're going to turn into maybe asphalt for the roads. Um, a lot of times they turn stuff like that into plastics. Um, but yeah, that's, there's so much more to it than that. But in Alaska, that's kind of the, the basic 
lifespan of crude coming out of the ground, going to a refinery, and then we send it all over the world. Uh, finished products, most of ours stay in Alaska because um, there's only one refinery in Alaska, but um, for the most part, it goes, um, the refineries down in the States and things send them um, everywhere. Like I said, they might might go to overseas. It could go to Russia, China. It could stay in uh, Texas, Louisiana, but really whoever's, um, whoever's paying for it. So, Yeah, it's it's a fascinating process, and I don't think people realize that you take this oil and depending on how you heat it and how it stratifies within these towers, you can pull different products out of that same liquid that's being pumped out of the ground. Yeah. It's weird. I mean, when you see them separate, you have this black, like I said, almost maple syrup crude oil. And depending on how you heat it up, you're going to have things that are neon green coming out of it. You're going to have things that are yellow coming out of it, clear coming out of it. And so it's a pretty complex, uh, little molecule in there that, that makes up crude oil. And it's, it's, it's fascinating. You're right. And on the different things, very, very smart people, um, have figured out how to do with it. So tell me about the sulfur. So sulfur, um, so when we flew over the refinery, I think what I was talking about pulling sulfur out of, um, what essentially is diesel. So, um, our local kind of market here and really everywhere in the U S a lot of times at the, at the fuel pumps, you'll see ULSD, which is ultra low sulfur diesel. And that means it's had sulfur removed out of it. Um, I'd be lying if I told you the date, but there was a certain point where the regulations said, hey, if you're burning fuel in automobiles, it needs to be ultra-low sulfur for emissions reasons. And so essentially what that is, your ultra-low sulfur diesel is really jet fuel, the same fuel you put in a 747. Um, They just remove this sulfur from that, and it literally comes out as yellow, powdery, dry sulfur, and that turns it into the, the road grade diesel you would see at the fuel pump. So it's, it's really an identical, um, substance. It's just had the sulfur removed for better emissions. And so, um, the difference between jet fuel and the diesel you put in your truck is, um, very, very, very small. It's almost the exact same thing. <laughs> so emissions don't count if it's coming out of a 747, right. but if exactly it's coming right. out of an F-350, sure. then yep. we've got to yes. put a stop to that. Whenever you talk about pumping oil especially you talked about oil rigs that are in the water etc i feel like people immediately go to oil spills and they they think about how bad that, that must be for the environment and certainly there are cases where it has been however when we were flying we were flying over absolutely pristine country that was untouched unsettled and some of those rivers had a rainbow going across the surface of the water because oil is naturally coming up out of the ground in those places. It is. Yeah. And salmon are just coming through there like crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's and have this, been forever. Sure. It's fantastic fishing. Yeah. There'd be more fish in there than and, and have been since long before us. You're right. But yeah, flying over a lot of those swamps that haven't, um, don't have anybody doing it. There's no people, no roads, but yeah, there is a lot, often the sheen of naturally occurring oil coming out of the ground. It also happens even in the water, you'll see natural gas coming up the cook inlet and in the salt water. Um, sometimes you'll see natural gas bubbling out of the, uh, out of the ground. It's bizarre. <laughs> it's crazy. So, yeah. Uh, huh. It puts it into perspective. Um, of course, nobody ever wants anything, um, polluting or harming wildlife, um, ever, but it puts it into perspective how, um, naturally occurring sometimes that is, and while it not be great for the, might not be great for the environment. Um, it, it does happen and it probably has been happening since long before we were here. So, yeah, really interesting. 
Is this uh, is this Cessna 185 the last airplane you'll ever own? Gosh, I, I've said that twice, but yeah, <laughs> it is. <laughs> you said that with the 150. I said it with the 175. Okay. So I have had three airplanes, but yeah, uh, this I'm, I I better give this plane to my son. If I don't, I had a, a change of heart or a life something happened in my life where I decided that flying wasn't for me anymore. But I don't see that happening. Um, that plane's awesome. It's big. It's fast. It's comfortable. Which um, my wife is a trooper, but, um, she's, she's not a big fan of turbulence and things like that. And it's, um, she loves flying in it. So as long as she loves flying in it, it's something we can do with our family. And it makes it really easy for me to put all the time I do into, um, you know, owning an airplane. It's a pretty, pretty big, uh, undertaking. And your son's a little over a year old. Where does he hang out when you're flying? He rides in a car seat, believe it or not. He's, uh, the airplane seats are not as great as far as making them work for little kids and small people like that. So he has a plain old normal car, car seat in the, uh, in the airplane. If we're on floats, he puts a life jacket on. So I had to, I went, I found a special car seat actually that fits in the plane a little better than his normal car one and, uh, is a little wider so he can wear his life jacket in there. But yeah, I, uh, it's pretty funny cause, um, there's a lot of cool stuff out the window, but he's a baby. And so he really sleeps most of the time we fly. So <laughs> Do you ever, uh, I mean, you haven't had issues with him sleeping. He's a super good kid, but I can imagine people that, you know, have kids that don't sleep well thinking, all right, we're going to go for a flight just so this kid can get some sleep. Yeah. No kidding. It'd be like driving your car around the block and firing (laughs) up the Cessna instead, but that would be a, you know what, um, if I ever need to, that would be a a realistic way to make him sleep because he does. I always joke. I said, there's going to be a day when I'm going to wake him up and say, you need to look out the window. Like this is awesome, but he's one, let him sleep. It's fine. (laughs) So what are some, some flying goals or some places that, that you've yet to fly that, that you still have? Alaska's huge. And so, um, I want to talk about that. Like how big is Alaska? Man, I think it's, I think it's around 600,000 square miles. I should know that, but it's like two and a half times the size of Texas, yeah. of which very little is accessible by roads. Say, I think, I think, I think 20% of Alaska, um, has road access. So if you figure, you know, again, two and a half states of Texas and only 20% of that has roads. So there's a lot of places to fly, um, tons of places to fly. A lot of which, you know, really haven't had a lot of people walking around. So there's, there's unexplored places, um, out the wazoo. So on my bucket list, um, places I have not gone, I would really like to go north of the Arctic circle. I have not done that yet. There's a place called Kobuk Sand Dunes. If you ever look it up on the internet, it literally looks like you're in the Sahara Desert. It's white, drifting, um, blowing sand. It looks it's it's very cliche desert looking, but um, you can go land an airplane there and take pictures. And it looks like again you're in the desert, but you're in Alaska. You're north of the Arctic Circle in Alaska. So that is that's pretty cool. Um, being on floats, um, southeastern Alaska has tons of really very very pretty. Um, place is only accessible by water. Um, so that's where a lot of the cruise ships will travel. Um, the big, beautiful glaciers landing in the water. Um, I could, I could probably spend years exploring the Southeast and never see everything. Um, Aleutian chain is beautiful. I don't have a lot of desire to go out there cause the weather's horrible. It's beautiful out that way, but I'm probably too chicken to venture out there on my own in an airplane. Um, they get they always, I think they call it the birthplace of the winds is out there. So it's not uncommon to have hundred mile an hour winds out that way. So I'll probably stick steer the airplane clear of the Aleutian chain. But, um, yeah, I'd like to go North Arctic circle. Um, 
there's a, there's plenty of places we haven't been that, I mean, would be on the list. Um, Brooks, Brooks camp, which is in the Katmai national forest. There's a lot of, um, a lot of the really cliche brown bear catching fish pictures and videos you see are from Brooks camp, Brooks camp in the Katmai. And that's where, um, it's, a um, I think Valley of Valley of 10,000 smokes. I might have that screwed up, but, um, on the way there, it's all volcanic. So, when you land in Naknek Lake, there's volcanic rock there that doesn't sink. It's floating volcanic rock that is really cool. And the bears go play with it. Um, you get a lot of really cool pictures. You'll see of people with their float planes pulled up on the edge of Naknek Lake. And those brown bears are so, um, their mind is set on catching fish. And as long as you don't interfere with that, they're totally fine with you being there. And so um, they walk really close to people, close to the airplanes. They're playing with the floating rocks. So... That's probably a bucket list item for a float plane as well as the Brooks Camp and Katmai. That sounds m- mythical. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, and on the way there, it's all, again, volcanic. There's thousands of years of volcano eruptions on the way there, which is um, it almost looks like glaciers of ash. And uh, I'm saying this because I've seen it in pictures. I haven't seen it in person, so but um, it's, it's beautiful. Wow. Uh, we've had a tremendous time fishing this week. And uh, my understanding is that this is the best sockeye run in the last 50 years, at least. There's more fish coming in. Some days there's been 100,000 fish that have come up the Kenai River. Is uh, is salmon and moose and stuff like that a big part of your diet? It is. Um, luckily, my wife and son love salmon. I like salmon and uh, and, and wild game moose like that. Um, a lot of people don't, or maybe it doesn't agree with their, their digestive system. Or, but um, luckily, we love it, so... Um, what we typically will catch, um, to me, silvers are, um, the most fun to catch. So we catch a lot of silver salmon, um, reds. I like eating the most, but they're, um, they're not as much fun to catch. So I end up not having as much reds in the freezer, but salmon, silvers and reds, we typically have quite a bit of in the freezer. Um, and then moose, moose is a big staple. Um, my family can't eat a whole moose in a year, but, um, typically I, we can eat half a moose in a year. So, um, my goal is always in a hunting season between me and my hunting partner, if we can kill one moose together, we can split it. And we have, um, hamburger, sausage, um, Italian sausage, things like that for, um, a whole season. And we're actually doing great. I always feel bad if it gets close to fishing and hunting season, I might have a freezer full of fish and, and moose we didn't eat, but, um, I can tell it's getting close to fall time. Cause I think we have maybe 10 packs of moose burger left, which is a good thing. So we'll get to hopefully replenish it here in September, but how do you like to cook salmon? I, I mean, I've got a lot of, lot of sockeye cooking ahead of me right now. I think I've got pretty close to 120 pounds That's great. of fillets, like packaged fish uh, that I'm taking back with me. I shipped 90 pounds back today. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it has been just murder out here this week. My favorite, and this is the new development in the last like two years, because I've eaten salmon my whole life. Lots of, <laughs> I mean, barbecued salmon with lemon pepper and mayonnaise and dill on it and things like that. Um, this is kind of like the, it's probably not the most classic way to eat salmon. But the last two years I've gotten into, it's, there's actually a cookbook. There's a really um, locally famous restaurant in Girdwood, Alaska. It's called the Double Muskie, and it's a Cajun restaurant. Anyhow, in that cookbook is a recipe for deep fried coconut salmon. And when I first heard that, I'm like, I'm not going to deep fry salmon. That's, <laughs> that's not why I get salmon to go deep fry it. It's unbelievable. It really? is so good. Oh my gosh. It's like eating a donut. It's so, I mean, it's, it's like, it should be dessert. It's so good. How do you do it? But it ends up being, um, you make a pretty normal fish batter with flour. A lot of people do beer batter. Um, and you end up, um, 
getting it dry coated in flour, it looks like you're just going to deep fry anything normal, but then you dip it back in like some egg and then you end up hitting it with coconut, like sweetened coconut. So it literally looks like a donut hole before Mm. you drop it in the deep fryer. And then you end up making a sauce for it, which is like a reduction with sounds weird, but it's delicious. It's grape jelly, Dijon mustard and horseradish. (laughs) It's unbelievable though. So again, I've heard people eating this. That restaurant's been around my whole life and I've even seen that in the menu and it like insulted me. There's no way until somebody forced me to eat it. And I laugh so hard now because it's like, that is, that is my favorite way to eat fish now. And it's almost like the joke of eating like a a sea duck and you, you wrap it in bacon and everything else. Sure. Throw the bait, throw the duck away and eat everything else. Cause you could probably wrap cardboard and coconut and dip it in. Mm -hmm that sauce and it would taste good, but it's, it's really good. So, okay. I'm going to have to yeah, try that. I'll, I'll make sure you get it. Going to have to try that. What are some other critters you like to hunt? Um, you've got a beautiful blacktail on the wall here. Yep. That's a, a Sitka blacktail from, um, that's from Kodiak. Um, that was, those are, that's a fun hunt actually. Um, that hunt that we did from a boat, which I've no, I'm, I'm a wimp cause I've never done tents on Kodiak Island, which I feel like in before the end of my life, I need to go experience the real Kodiak uh, sleeping in a tent with the wind and the brown bears. And, um, that's kind of all the things you get to avoid when you're sleeping in a nice warm boat, but, um, hunting blacktails from a boat was awesome. So, um, you get to drop crab pots while you hunt. So when you come back, hopefully you might have some, some King crab to eat for dinner, which was pretty common. We might've struck it lucky, but, um, we got to fish for crab, while hunting for deer, you can shoot fox. I think there's three different, um, pretty common times of types of fox, uh, on Kodiak, the sea duck hunting. I've never been a big duck hunter cause I don't like to eat ducks, but it's fun to go. Um, and I was with a group of people that were avid duck hunters and, um, it was so much fun. You get to, um, you're hunting from a boat, of course. So, um, you got to have the engine stopped and things to shoot them, but there are some really rare, cool, very beautiful sea ducks. If people are into taxidermy with, um, waterfowl. You can shoot some very cool ducks there. But then the um, the deer hunting is just awesome because Kodiak is full of bears. Um, we went, when I was just there, it was in December when the grass kind of lays down. And so um, wimps like me, you can see the bears from a long ways away. You're not sneaking up on anything in grass, but um, it just, it's just a cool element. Kodiak is very almost volcanic looking, almost like Hawaii, how the cliff's coming out of water and um, um, it's very windy. So not a lot of trees really grow. Um, but, um, that was, that was probably one of the most fun hunts we did and, and, um, lots of deer. We had to work really hard for them because the winter kill the last couple of years, we've had really, um, aggressive winters, lots of snow, very cold temperatures, um, killed the deer off quite a bit. So we had, had to work a little, probably a little harder for them than, um, we should have, but, um, fun camaraderie. Again, you're going back to a boat at night where it's warm and you've got electricity and lights and it's, it's pretty tough to beat that. So, oh, that's amazing. Uh, Kodiak is a special place and I've spent a very small amount of time in a tent there, uh, compared to a lot of guys, but yeah, it, it is definitely an experience. There's wind, there's rain, and you think that you might get visited at any point Mm -hmm. by a bear a lot bigger than your future. Now we hunted deer a little bit and due to that winter kill and due to the area that we're in, we just couldn't turn them up. You know, we're seeing, seeing some does, seeing some fawns, which was encouraging, but we just could not turn up a buck. It's just too, too hard. So I definitely want to go back and, and do that again. I think that would be really neat. And even some of the early season stuff, like August, um, when they're still in the velvet and they're up in the Alpine and you can go land in those really high lakes, 
that that's a really special hunt. Absolutely. Yeah. That's kind of on my list too. We did the late season because, um, it was just convenient for us. And you know, it's, it's when the snow starts to push the animals down a little bit, it, they kind of be, you don't have to go so high up in the Alpine, like you were talking about, you see more of them on the beach. Um, but it, it definitely is a different hunt, different experience. I think if you get to, to go up high, sleep in tents, things like that. So, and what, from what I hear again, haven't shot one, but tremendous table fare. People yeah. really like Sitka black. Table. Yeah. I mean, I, I think they're fantastic. Um, have you battered one of those in coconut? I've uh, not. That might, maybe that's the next on the list. Okay. Is my, my coconut battered black tail. Uh, <laughs> it sounds no, good. It doesn't does it? does sound good. <laughs> but again, I, I think I could do that to a shoe and it would be good. So what about other hunts that you have, uh, in, in the bucket? Have you been sheep hunting yet? I've not been sheep hunting. That's a, that's kind of a, a, a very narrow niche that takes, um, very skilled, not just hunters, but, um, outdoorsmen. Those, those guys pack very light and are really good at, um, hiking a long ways with very little. So, um, I've had friends that, um, I've helped can I go scout areas out with the airplane, um, sheep hunting, but I've not gone on a sheep hunt. I would love to, um, that's kind of a, it's that, those, that actually seems, um, one of like one of the cooler hunts because it's so much more about the hunt than the multiple pounds of game you're going to bring back like a moose. Um, you know, it's almost like a grocery run where as a sheep hunt, you're doing a lot of work probably with two of you, um, sometimes to shoot one animal and bring it back a very long ways. And so it's a lot of logistics involved, keeping, um, meat safe, keeping yourself safe, packing enough food and gear to, um, to climb up in the Alpine and not kill yourself. So I have not done a sheep hunt. I would really like to. So Brown bear, brown bear. I want to do a Kodiak brown bear hunt. Mm-hmm. I've been involved in some, uh, West side of the cook inlet brown bear hunts, which is a lot of fun that there's a lot of bears over there and they're, they're pretty common. Um, pretty much I, w- I was telling you earlier that, um, the two moose I've shot over there, I've within 48 hours had probably two or three brown bears on them. So there are, there are a lot over there and that's really probably a lot of remote Alaska, but, um, I think it would be really cool to shoot a, a Kodiak brown bear, um, just to kind of, if I'm going to spend all the effort to go through taxidermy, things like that, I think it would be cool to, to have it from Kodiak. So what's the size difference They're Um, they're definitely bigger. I, um, I don't know how much bigger I know it has a lot to do with the skull of a Kodiak brown bear versus, um, a normal brown bear and even a grizzly. Um, I, I, it's probably a lot of, uh, hearsay and maybe even wives tale, but I think, you know, the grizzlies are being in the interior don't eat a lot of fish. And when bears eat fish, it's really high in fat and protein. It's really good food for them. So, um, that's how they can get really big. Um, the Kodiak brown bears are always said to be bigger, meaner, more sought after. So I think there's a, a genetic difference in them, um, between the two of them. Yeah. So, you know, some of the, the top end of the bears and Kodiak are like 10 and a half feet long. Right. If you went to the West side of Cook Inlet would you'd be looking at like seven foot bears, eight foot bears. Yeah. I mean that, that'd be a good bear. I mean, I think if you shot, um, I think people that shoot eight, eight foot bears in, in that area are big bears. Yeah. Um, that's a huge bear. That's a, it's a massive bear. Yeah, yeah. you're right. But when you get to looking at pictures of the Kodiak bears, people shoot, they look fake. Yeah. You know, it's a different they're, level. They're monsters. So it looks like you could wrap both your arms around their head right. and not touch your fingers yep. kind of deal. Yeah. Man, we, we saw a couple, couple pretty big bears when we were over there, but, I saw a track that was just unsettling to stand next to. Um, they are such a tremendously large animal. Yeah. And they're, they're fast. I mean, people, I mean, they, they look like they just kind of saunter around and they're big, 
their fur makes them look kind of chubby even, but they are fast, fast animals. They can, they can get moving in a hurry and they run. I mean, it looks they look not as fast as a horse, but they look like a horse galloping when they're full tilt um, running. Jeez. So they're, they're pretty efficient animals when they want to be. Hmm. Well, anything else you want to talk about? Um, no, I'm glad you guys, uh, I'm glad you made it up here. I'm glad you, you came for that late, uh, red run. And like you said, kind of a unprecedented late salmon run we had. So I'm glad you got to be here to nail that. Um, you're going to get to do saltwater fishing or have you already? Tomorrow morning, Great. we're going to go out and, uh, try and find some halibut. And, uh, I like our odds there. So that, that should be good. And hopefully pass some more pounds yeah, of fish going back. Out of Homer. We're going to go out of, um, anchor point. Oh, that's okay. Cool. So I think that's a beach launch, right? Yep. That's a pretty cool scene. Actually. They have, um, like log skitters that launch you in the surf. And mm -hmm. so a lot of people put in from Homer and they run all the way around the point to where you're going to be fishing, or you can go to where you're at and get kind of an exciting start and finish to your day, but they put you right in the fish. So it was nice calm water today. We we're down in Homer and it, it was a lake out there. I could have yeah. run my jet boat on it, but I hope for that again That's tomorrow. That's perfect for halibut fishing. If you're anchored yeah. up, you don't want to sit there and be bobbing around, staring at, you know, the horizon bouncing. So for hope sure. for calm seas for you. For sure. Well, thank you so much for your hospitality and, and for taking us on that flight. That was, Absolutely. you know, a, a lifetime memorable experience. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's just cool to talk airplanes and talk Alaska yeah, with I you. I love it. Yeah. I could stay here for hours talking about airplanes. <laughs> so no, anytime, any, absolutely anytime we'll, we'll do it again. So yeah, I look forward to it. All right. Well, thanks again, man. Thank you. I live in an old cabin with bad to non-existent insulation and wood heat. That cabin can see snow every month of the year and needs a good amount of firewood stacked in the woodshed to carry through the colder months. This spring, as my woodpile turned to smoke and ash, I noticed something metal pushing out of the decades of sawdust and bark. I kicked at it and unearthed a Stanley thermos. The cup was missing, and it showed more worn stainless steel than green. There were dents in the metal, and the handle looked like a puppy had chewed on it, but it still hadn't leaked the old coffee I could feel slosh inside. It took me back to memories of cutting firewood with my dad, waking up early for an elk hunt or going out to the canyons to gather cattle. A Stanley thermos has the durability to survive whatever hard work you throw at it. You may find it carries memories as well as coffee. Learn more about their new and classic line of products at stanley1913.com or at your local sporting goods store. And catch you next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.